Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning on this Lord's Day. If you have your copy of God's Word, will you open with me to the first Timothy? We'll be in chapter 1, continuing there in verses 3 through 7, but we'll read the entirety of the chapter. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some, having strayed from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters for which they make confident assertion. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, the for, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Amen. This is the word of the living God for his people. Let's pray. Our Father, we join our hearts together before your throne of grace because of the merit and the person and work of your Son. Father, we beseech you this very hour that you would, by your Spirit, cause us to understand, to know, to study, to proclaim the truths which we have received that have brought salvation to our souls. We pray, Father, that your word would dwell richly within our hearts and by your spirit it would push forth the fruits thereof. That you would be honored and glorified, that we might know how we are to behave in the household of our God. We pray that those that are here who do not know you, that your word would find victory in their hearts that hearts of stone would be removed and hearts of flesh replaced, that they may experience the power of Christ's resurrection 
that they may be yours by the adoption of your spirit, that you would receive all glory and honor and praise that you were due. Help us with your word this morning. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, church, we are looking at Paul's pastoral letter to Timothy. Um, We are doing so uh, not just for the sake of head knowledge, but for the sake of ourselves and for our gathering here at Bethany. While we do see this as one of Paul's pastoral letters, and, and certainly it deals with the ministerial tasks of the church, qualified offers and such, there is much that we as Christians who seek to grow in full maturity by the Word of God should learn from this letter as well. Last time when we began looking at just the introduction, uh, we pointed that Paul, we pointed the fact that Paul gives us the very reason for why he wrote this letter uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. If you, if you would, please switch over to that chapter. Let's just take a real quick glance and be reminded at the purpose for which Paul writes. Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, I am writing these things to you, that is to Timothy, hoping to come to you before long. But in the case that I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. It's helpful for us to understand the reason why a letter is written, particularly when we have the inspired word of of Scripture, giving us that very definition for the purpose. I also would like to point out there's not just an overarching purpose of this letter, but there is an importance of scope to this letter. If you flip over to chapter 4 and verse 16, let's be reminded, each of us, that there is a, a reason why Paul writes and there is a scope of importance found in verse 16. Paul says to Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Paul tells Timothy here, not only is there a reason why he's writing, but there is an importance behind that reasoning. And it is for the glory and proper worship of God and for the transformation of our lives. All of us here at Bethany, we need to make sure that we are holding to the truth and faith, heeding the warnings of Scripture, receiving the blessed promises, pressing on to the hope that is found in the safety of Christ Jesus that we have recorded for us in God's Word. The last time we concentrated just on the sender and the receiver of this letter, and we concluded looking at the gospel uh, implications of the first two verses, Um, the Christ-centeredness, if you will, of the first two verses. And there was an important uh, lesson. I, I have been preaching this to myself for many months, and that is that I don't look too quickly past those introductions. Uh, we, we can sometimes try to get to the meat of a letter, or even as we get to the end or the close of a letter, to skip over those closing words. Brethren, I have to remind myself of this as well. Every word is inspired by God and good for us. Let's see that as we open up these letters in our own time and study. This morning, we are going to look at Paul's pastoral treatment of a problem with which he quickly starts to address in the letter. Uh, this problem had not only begun to affect individuals, but certainly had the um, propensity to affect the entire church. We mentioned this last time, uh, that so often what motivated the Apostle Paul in writing to individuals or to churches uh, was to deal with certain issues. We don't want to uh, dismiss these issues as just first century problems. We want to look at these issues and note that even in our day, these problems are relevant. The warnings here for us to be diligent in the Word of God are just as real to us as they were to Timothy, as they were to those in Ephesus. Let me give you a brief overview of verses 3 through 7, which will be our focus, our 
Our doctrine and application will come from the fifth verse, uh, if you're keeping notes, but the overarching uh, brief overview of the text is this. Paul says to Timothy to instruct certain men in the church not to teach strange doctrine and to stop spending their time paying attention to things that are meaningless rather than focusing on the work of God, the truthful revelation of God and His gospel. Then he warns of the unprofitableness of straying from the truth as well as the motivation of those who wish to do so. The very purpose of these warnings to these teachers was to turn them to the goal of love based on a committed conscience. And so that's what we have contained in those verses. We'll begin our exposition of the text looking at verse 3. As we begin, though, uh, we might find, if we're familiar with Paul's writings, that there seems to be something missing. We may notice right away that there's something different about this letter. What ordinarily would follow the greeting is a short mention of thankfulness, usually in the form of a prayer, not very long, usually just a sentence in length. However, here in Timothy, 1 Timothy, Paul transitions from the Christ-centered gospel greeting directly to the heart of the matter. He seemingly skips any mention of gratitude for the church and makes no mention of their sincere faith or works of prayer for him. We find this in Galatians as well. Instead of uh, transitioning to a, a, a short thankfulness, he gets directly to the issue. Uh, also in Titus, we find that it is missing. So as we begin with our exposition, we are highlighting what isn't there as significant for us in Paul's letter. Verse 3, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. The Apostle Paul uses the word urged with Timothy. Now this reflects some conversation that was had prior to this letter was writ being written, but Paul uses a very gentle urging here with Timothy. And as we stated before, Paul and Timothy have a very close spiritual relationship, spiritual father to spiritual son, and Paul is familiar with Timothy, and Timothy is familiar with Paul. So why the formality of such a, an entrance into this letter? Well, we know that this is not just for Timothy, but it will be read to the church, to those that are, that are in Ephesus. There is a clue to this at the end of this letter, verse 21 of chapter 6. Paul says, grace to you. The you there is plural. There is a, a departure from the letter that addresses this to the, entire, the entirety of God's people gathered at Ephesus. And so, as someone would read this letter or hear it being read they would have no doubt been informed that Paul, gently urging Timothy, Paul is the reason why Timothy is there at Ephesus. There's also a connection in the urging of Timothy uh, to something rendered in verse 1, where, where we're told that Paul is an apostle by the commandment of God our Savior. So there still carries, though it is a gentle urging, there still carries apostolic authority with this letter. He was an apostle according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. And so there is still very quickly an authoritative component, uh, a command structure, if you will, of this letter. And we'll speak more about this as we make our way through it in subsequent messages, Lord willing. But Paul is a formal, he is the formal representative of Christ. Timothy is under the authority of Christ and Paul to remain on at Ephesus for a very specific reason. This part of the letter may even have been worded in such a way that when Timothy shared this with the church, it would be obvious to them that it carried the apostolic authority contained in the letter. Paul, telling Timothy to remain on at Ephesus while he is on his way to Macedonia. Let me give us some geographical awareness of these two territories. Um, if you can picture the Mediterranean Ocean, where it is a 
above the north of the Mediterranean Ocean is the, um, the Aegean Sea. And if you're looking at a map, to the right side is modern-day Turkey. On the west coast there is a port city of Ephesus. And that's where Ephesus was, and that's where Ephesus is today. If you were to go directly across the Aegean Sea, you would find the territory, a mountainous territory of Macedonia, uh, which contained other provinces, which we find uh, with, recorded within the books that we have in the New Testament. We have the area of Berea, Philippi, and Thessalonica. Ephesus is a key location for the spreading of the gospel. It was a port city in Asia Minor and a hotbed of pagan activity. There was the site of the temple of uh, Artemis, which was at that time considered one of the seven wonders of the world. There was also a large Jewish population there, as we're told in Acts chapter 18, verse 19, where Paul goes into the synagogue there to reason with the Jews. And we know that Paul ministered here in Ephesus for three years. And as I said, it was a strategic launching point for the preaching of the gospel. There is a description of Ephesus found in Acts uh, 19, where we find references to the temple of Artemis. The book of Acts also contains information on Paul's first visit to Ephesus in chapters, uh, chapter 18, verses 19 through 21, and records Paul's meeting with the Ephesian elders at Miletus, which is just south of the city of Ephesus, where Paul warned the elders of the exact thing to which he was now writing the church, that those from among them would rise up as wolves. The departure that Paul is speaking about here uh, must, uh, would have been later than the Macedonian journey that we find mentioned in Acts and the place of the conversation that he had with Timothy, we are not told. Moving on, so that you may instruct certain men. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men. By the end of this third verse, we're told something of the very reason for which Timothy is to stay. It is to command. The word there is, can be translated command. It is to instruct certain men. Now, we know from the scriptures that uh, Timothy is something of a timid and emotional prodigy of Paul, but nonetheless, he was to remain on and he was to give this command. And we start to see something more of this structure a little clearly. Uh, Christ's apostle commanding Timothy to command certain men. And this is important even as we look at the church today. Uh, the apostles were given to the church, starting the church. Uh, we know that Christ is the one who gives the revelation of himself, of the Father, by the Spirit, through his word, to those apostles. That revelation is passed on uh, to their followers, on to those who are gathered in the name of Christ that make up the churches, so on and so forth. We can stretch back all the way to this letter looking at the structure of the church as God's good and intended purpose for how we gather together. So God's word, his command, his instruction is good for us. It was good for Timothy, it was good for Paul, and it remains so today. While the names of these certain men are not given to us, we can know something about their faith, and that was that it had not yet been made shipwrecked. Paul's care for the church and for these men is evident in the apostolic correction that is provided for them here as if to say, for their good and the good of the church, Timothy, command these men, instruct them. Now, we're not given the names of these certain men, and I think there's some wisdom in that. Um, not mentioning their names may uh, possibly bring, more likely than not, the healing that is required for these men. But we do know that Paul is not shy of mentioning names. As we saw the close of this chapter, uh, he mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander as those whom he has handed over to Satan so that they would learn or be taught not to blaspheme. Now, what is it that Timothy is to command these certain men? He is to command them not to teach strange doctrines. 
Timothy's mission is now in full focus. There is a group of men that are teaching strange doctrines, crooked thinking, if you will. They have departed from the straight thinking or, or right belief in Ephesus. Now, there are two words that might help us with our understanding on what's going on here. The issue is that these men were teaching things that had veered from the truth and the sound teaching of the apostle. They're not teaching outright heresy at this point. But the word translated here for strange doctrine is the word some of you might be familiar with. It's heterodoxy. They were teaching heterodoxy, which is not straight teaching. We might recognize the opposite of that. The straight teaching is orthodoxy. Now, those might be big words, but they're very important words. I can give a little illustration on helping us understand what orthodoxy is. How many people here have been to an orthopedic surgeon or an orthodontist? It's okay if you don't want to say. An orthopedic surgeon, what is the job of the orthopedic surgeon? It is to straighten the bones. An orthodontist straightens your teeth. So an orthodoxy or orthopraxy is straight, straight behavior, straight practice, or straight teaching, straight thinking. And this is what Paul says these men were straying from. Now the issue isn't that Paul was the source and authority on what was being taught. The issue is that Paul had established for the Ephesians what, the Ephesians, what he had received from Jesus. You remember after Paul's conversion, he was commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel to kings and Gentiles. And after that, for a while, he, uh, he went to Arabia. And after that, he met with the apostle Peter in Jerusalem. And the only other leader after Paul's conversion that he met with at that time was James, who was the presiding leader over the church in Jerusalem. Paul, we're told in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 12, learned from the, by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what he learned, he deposited in the churches that he planted. Paul's gospel and teaching is the same as the other apostles. And these men had not only veered from it, but now they were teaching others from that wrong position. Timothy is to command them to not teach strange doctrine. Moving on to verse 4, not only is Timothy to command these men to instruct them not to teach strange doctrines, but he is also to tell them not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Verse 4 reads, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Paul's concern here is twofold with regard to these men, and he has good reason for it. He would write later in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, Some will soon not endure sound doctrine, wanting their ears to be tickled. They accumulate teachers unto themselves and turn aside to myths. So Paul is writing with a twofold purpose. Number one, they were to stop teaching these things that veered from the truth that Paul had taught. And they were to be mindful of what they were spending their time on, what they were paying attention to. Now, Bethany, we, we hear these things, and I, I want to bring them into a modern context. There is a danger for us, especially in our world, as there are so many voices and so many things that garner for our attention. What we put before our eyes and what we pay attention to with our minds has an effect on the truth that we hold to. This is an excellent word for us today. Let us pay attention to the things that we are giving our focus to and measure out, are these things worthless? Is their end in vanity? Do they result in love? Do they uh, further edification? Is this, is this lending to my sanctification? If not, cast it away from before you. Briefly, I want to give uh, just a little attention to these two subject matters, myths and endless genealogies. Commentaries offer various opinions on what these two things might be. Um, I am of the opinion that these are Jewish traditions, not 
uh, Gentile uh, myths. Um, and I think we get a hint to this um, as we see a reference later in this letter in chapter 4 and verse 3 where Paul says though there were those who were forbidding marriage and teaching others to abstain from certain food. These, I believe, are of Jewish origin. And also in Titus 1.14, Paul there calls these uh, Jewish myths. And the damage of these myths comes from the very empty content. It comes from their attractiveness and their general uselessness. Paul has good reason to put the charge to Timothy because what was coming out of these vain speculations and because they caused Christians to ignore what was most important. What is most important is the truths concerning redemption, the gospel, the furtherance of the growing in the wisdom and the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. The result of this useless teaching is then contrasted to the truly edifying work of God that comes from godly instruction. In fact, Paul's point points, Paul points uh, in the concluding end of this verse, that these works of the imagination only lead to speculation, and they failed to further God's work. Paying attention to these things, Paul says, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The stewardship or the administration of God here is clear to us if we turn back to Ephesians. Now, I realize we're in 1 Timothy. It's not cheating to turn to Ephesians. So we'll turn to Ephesians chapter 3. This is the letter that Paul has already written to the, to the church. The church is there. I want us to get an idea of what the stewardship or administration of God is. We're going to read from verses 1 through 10. I'll read real quickly. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship, there's that word, of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation, hang on, that's going to be an important word, there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote, therefore in brief, I referring to, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in another generation was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the work of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration, there's that word again, of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This administration is the same word that Paul uses to Timothy, and it is the work of God that is to be focused upon the redemptive purposes of God by His grace and that alone. Anything else will lead the Ephesians away from carrying out that faithful work of bringing people to the place of obedience before Jesus. Faith and obedience. There was an acceptable standard of apostolic teaching, and Paul wanted Timothy to follow it. This was no novel doctrine. It was no petty project or cause. This was God's truth for God's people. Verses 5 and 6. So what Paul has just concluded, we might be able to truncate in the imagination of men leads to speculation. But Paul is going to contrast that with the revelation of God, which leads to edification and sanctification. The outcome of which that revelation produces love. Verse 5 and 6. 
Paul says, but the goal of our instruction, the word instruction there could also be rendered command, is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some, having wandered away from these and turned to meaningless, some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. This section gives us a stark contrast to the, con- to the crooked teaching, the heterodox way. That contrast is this apostolic way. That which is right. And I want us to see the connection here. Apostolic teaching in truth results in love. It results in love. The goal of this instruction is love which is evident in the Christian life. That love flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If we follow what Paul's thought is here, ultimately, for those in the church and for us as well, Paul is saying that the instruction is the seed. It is the good seed. The pure heart, the good conscience, the sincere faith, you could see, say is the soil from which this good seed is planted. And from that soil, there is a, a bounty of love that is produced. So the instruction of Paul produces love, but it does so through a sincere faith. We'll treat these three things as one unit, um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because we, we cannot end up with a pure heart before we have a sincere faith. We do not receive a good conscience apart from a pure heart and apart from a sincere faith. So the apostolic authority that has been laid upon Paul comes from the good and perfect commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus. This is a good which, Paul, which God gives to the early church by establishing Paul and others as apostles for the church. Um, before we move on to dealing with those three components, I did want to say this, that uh, with this office of, apostles, of apostle uh, comes the revelation of the truth of God. We would say that the, um, the apostolic office doesn't have a succession into our time today. The uh, persons or the office of the apostle has been done away with, but we would also affirm, we would affirm this, that apostolic truth and teaching does succeed through the times. We do receive that instruction. It is the apostle's teaching that guarantees the truth. And then Paul adds an element of blessing here, telling Timothy that as he commands these certain men to cease from crooked teaching, that the command which Paul, the instruction which Paul has been given and transferred, given to Timothy by way of Christ Jesus, applied by the Holy Spirit, results in love. The opposite is true as well. If we look back at the previous verse, the crooked teaching, the strange doctrines, do not produce love. In fact, they only produce speculation and argumentation. Command Paul gives to Timothy results in love. Love to God with all that we are, love to our neighbors, love to our brethren, love to one another, love to our fellow image bearers as we minister the truths of God's gospel that we have received for the saving of lost souls. So then, what we find is that the administration of God, which is by faith mentioned in verse 4, leads to what Paul says in verse 5. And brethren, the implications of this uh, reach us today, as we have discussed already, but let me give you an example. The truth of God, the instruction of God, as you come into the church and you hear the preaching of the gospel, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to the believer, it doesn't just fall upon you as one option of many good things that you can choose to obey. When you come into the house of God and you hear the preaching of God's word, when you 
open up God's Word and, and you study God's Word, it is to you an authority. It is to the believer a law. And if you come into the Lord's house and you are without Christ, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and you hear the call, you hear the proclamation of the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must decide what you will do with what you hear. You cannot walk away neutral. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Or this, if you are a Christian and you, you come to a brother or sister uh, with an issue and your life doesn't matter what it is, and they sit down with you and they crack open God's word, and they tell you that what you are thinking or what you are doing is this way, but the word of God says this. You do not have the option to weigh that, Christian, and come away thinking, yeah, I know what the scriptures say here, but... Now, people can respond in two ways, right? They can say, I understand what the scriptures say, but I'm going to do what I want to anyway. But you need to know that in that moment, you are not just ignoring words from a book. In that moment, you are disobedient to the commandment of God. You are disobedient to the instruction and the word of God. However, if the word of God comes to you, and it has its effect to correct your actions or your thinking, then you are being obedient to the command of God. There is a connection. The truth received results in obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. The idea here is plain. The truth results in love. Love for God, love for others. The true message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, when received, we know cleanses the conscience, grows the believer in sanctification and obedience to God. Now, what of these three components, pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith? As I said, they are unified, kind of an unbroken chain that are dependent upon the last clause, sincere faith. They are inseparable truths that result from the work of God in bringing the sinner to new life. All three of these subjects are worthy of further study, but let's look at just the new heart really quick. A new heart given by God is the one that is connected to a good conscience. The natural heart, that is the heart in fallen man, is hard. It is stony. It does not respond to divine stimuli. In fact, it is the very heart that needs to be replaced because the heart is the seat of human will and imagination and desire. That heart needs to be replaced. And what we see here is that the instruction Paul is giving results in a pure heart. Uh, It comes from a pure heart, love that springs from it, produces a good conscience, the heart being the seat of all intellect from which thought and reflection come. We see this in Mark's uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, Acts chapter 7, verse 23, Romans 121. The conscience of the Christian, though, is informed by the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin, bringing awareness of the obligation and confirming obedience or disobedience to the word when it is heard. A good conscience. A conscience is good because it is cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9.14 tells us that exact thing. And just as the conscience is cleansed, so the heart made pure by true faith. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As a reference point, the work of the heart and conscience, the connection between the two, you can see in 1 Samuel chapter 24. You might recall there, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. David has just cut off a piece of Saul's cloak. And the word tells us, uh, the King James is very, very poignant. It says that David's heart smote him. 
or David's conscience was heavy because of what he had done in, in other translations. The heart and the conscience are certainly connected. What about sincere faith? Simply faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith comes from hearing the truth of God, revelation of God in Christ Jesus, and that produces sincere faith by the Spirit. And a true and sincere faith born from above is not detached from true confessions. If you have a sincere faith, you will profess things, confess things that you know to be true from the Scriptures. True confessions rooted in the Scriptures. The most basic of those confessions of faith could be as simple as Jesus is Lord. All people of sincere faith confess truths that they know from the Scriptures. Those truths come from revelation of the Scriptures. Paul moves to this type of apostolic confession, uh, as we've already read in verse 15 of chapter 1, where he says that it is a trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom Paul notes himself as chief. Paul would say in Romans 13, 8, the one who loves Another fulfills the law. Uh, we will also note that John in verse thir- or chapter 13, verse 35, says that by this all men shall know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The love which pours forth from the reality of a sincere faith is the goal, the goal of the instruction. Verse 6. Some have wandered away from these things and turned to meaningless talk. This could be referring to the certain men in total. I I do believe that um, what Paul is speaking of here is a subset of these men who have already strayed from the truth so far as that they have been uh, proven to be false teachers. Uh, They have strayed from the instruction and administration, and they have wandered from the goal of these things, which is love. What they have turned to is meaningless talk. And we want to notice here that there's, there's no neutrality in the turning. You either hold to the truth or you hold to a lie. This is a good warning for us Christians. Let's not think that we can turn from the truth to something that's just apoplectic or neutral. If you turn, if you swerve from the truth, you turn to something else. This is the same thing that we see when Uh, where we read that that those that receive the gospel, if you receive the gospel, you reject everything in the world, love for it, all of its context. If you reject the gospel, you're not neutral. If you reject the gospel, you receive everything else instead. There's no neutral handoff. Let us be warned that we must Pursue the truth at all times and hold to it. In other words, if we aim wrong, we hit the wrong target. And to miss the target in this context is to end up achieving empty and vain ends where love is lost. Interestingly, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writes a letter to this church. And in that letter... He says, I have this one thing against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. His warning to that church was, you have stopped doing the things you did first. Return to the things you did. Repent, for I come to you, and I will remove the lampstand from among you, unless you repent. So love is the goal of the instruction. Verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. One commentator put it this way, Paul pictured these teachers as aspiring to be like Jewish rabbis, spitting out sterile interpretations and uses of the Old Testament stories and regulations. 
They pretended to be wise sages, but they were really pontificating upon truths that they had not even begin to fathom, begun to fathom. These men had ambition without qualification. And some of them, ultimately, as we find through this letter, would end in Revelation chapter 2, would be rooted out as false apostles. These teachers did not understand two things, literally the things that they were saying or the things that they were confident in. They want to teach God's law to God's people in an inappropriate way and proved that God had not opened their hearts and minds to understanding the things contained in His Word, let alone the proper uses of the law. We will expand more on this verse as we open up in later sermons, Lord willing, when we look at verses 8 through 11. Now we will switch to our doctrine and application. And as we switch there, I just have one point and some helpful things for us to consider. First of all, we do not need, as God's people, to focus on all of the, all of the uh, strange doctrines, myths and endless genealogies. Uh, many commentators say that those things were of Jewish tradition, the Midrash Haggadah, which uh, Jewish rabbis would, would take certain things in the past and they would attach um, stories to them that could not be confirmed as commentaries. Um, we do not need to focus on all of the false doctrines and false teachings in order to understand the truth. What we need to do is we need to focus on the truth. When you study the truth, all other discernible things that are false will stand out to you. Instruction in and proclamation of biblical truth results in love. This is our, our doctrinal point. But Bethany, our church, we need to continue to hear the gospel. And we need to understand that there are individual circumstances, there are corporate circumstances that will require the Word of God to bear upon those situations. We need the truth, and we need to study the truth. We need to be diligent in the truth. And so let's keep that in mind as we go through this point together. The point here is taken from verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love. As always, I commend all of Scripture to you, for as we're told, it is inspired by God, it is profitable for teaching and uh, correction, training and righteousness, making uh, the man of God adequate, equipped for every good work. Certainly, the growing Christian is called to maturity in faith, and it is in this way that we look to the Scriptures for that teaching and training. What is the instruction that is referred to here? Very simply, it's sound doctrine. But what is it specifically? It is the truth regarding the reality of God's holiness and the seriousness of man's sin against that holy God. The sound instruction begins with the fact that these two things, God's holiness and our sinfulness, are irreconcilable apart from the person and work of Christ Jesus. That is where the gospel shines bright, is at the cross and in the life of Christ Jesus, our living Savior. Now, unbeliever, here is life for you. Though your current situation be dim, though God is holy, though we are all sinners deserving of His wrath and judgment forever, as we go through these points, listen to this reality. God's promise stands firm in Jesus for you. Cast down your weapons of self-righteousness. Look for that remedy and that refuge that we heard in the opening of our worship, the call to a city of refuge. Come to Christ as refuge. Find hope and liberty and peace with God that is only available through faith in His Son. For the believer, as we come to these points and we consider them, having come to the river flowing with life-giving water, having tasted that the Lord is good, drink often of the truths of Scripture and drink deeply. Share with others that you may give them the light of life that you have received. Now, we're going to look at what 
In three parts, we're going to look at the instruction. Number one is going to be the what, number two is going to be the why, and number three is going to be the how. And then under the how, I offer three points, and then we'll conclude. Number one, what is this healthy, sound instruction that Paul is talking about? There are many explanations throughout Scripture by the teaching of this apostle, other letters of the New Testament, but we're going to look just at 1 Timothy at some of these things which Paul lays out. We've already read through the first chapter. We've heard verse 15. What are some of the instructions and truths about Christ? Well, it is true and trustworthy that he came into the world to save sinners. 115. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We're told that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony given at a proper time. Chapter 3, verse 16, right after Paul gives the qualifications of elders and deacons, he declares the purpose for writing the letter. And then he says this, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed on in all the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Paul says in the very next verse, uh, oh, I'm sorry, finally there's one more, chapter 4 and verse 10, uh, we find our hope to be fixed on the living God who is the Savior of all men. Chapter 4, verse 10 tells us there's not only a current hope for the believer, there is a future hope, an eschatological hope as well. And then in verse 11, right after that, Paul says to Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. These are the things, and there are, there are many more, brethren, but within our letter, these are the things that Paul would highlight as being places of rest for us and comfort for us as we look to what this instruction what the point of this instruction is. If it's going to produce love for God, if it's going to produce love for our fellow men, then it has to come from who we know to, what we know to be true about Christ Jesus. That is the what. Let's move to the why. Why should we hold fast to apostolic instruction? Well, first of all, because the Scriptures command it. But Scripture commands it because of the importance of truth. Brethren, we live... Uh, in a time when everybody is afforded their own truth. We live in a time when truth can mean one thing one day and something else another day. The apostolic instruction is truth, and that truth is the foundation for salvation. It does not change. And we ought not give one inch of compromise on the truth as we look to the Scriptures. So for teaching and instruction, especially in our day and age, it is vital that we stand in and for the objective truth of the revelation of God. We know that God's word is truth, and that needs to be believed on in our hearts, it needs to be proclaimed by our mouths, and it needs to be displayed practically in our lives. Why should we hold fast to this truth? It needs to be held fast for life and practice. Our lives should be transformed by the teachings of the Holy Scriptures because in them we find truth regarding the one who saves and changes us. Now, we're not ignorant of the damage that has been done to churches and the cause of the gospel because of men who are in offices who are not qualified to be there or because they have left sound words Here's another warning. We don't get to pick up the truths and hold to them for a moment and then set them down and walk away. If, remember, if you turn from the truth, you turn to something else. You're just a little off. And if anybody here is a carpenter or knows anything about being just a little off at zero, once you get out a little ways, you're further off than that line you need to be on. Some men, having started off well, have drifted from the faith, have drifted from the truth. I'm sure you have any number of men that you could bring to mind. But I want to stir us up and plead with us to see the importance of holding to this instruction because of the danger of losing the truth. 
Many institutions have started off as bastions for the truth of the gospel, but they have little remaining of that truth within their walls today. And churches are not exempt. We need to always have the call of Jesus in Revelation 2 ready in our minds to prevent from straying, but also a truth that we must obey if we ever do. Paul warns Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, many have turned away from his teachings. Many in Asia have already departed from him, he says. So let us guard the truth, not so we can hide it, but so that we can live it and proclaim it. All right, now that we have seen something of the what and the importance of the why, let us now look at how we are to hold on to these truths and sound doctrine. First of all, we hold on to these truths by knowing them experientially. Our text says that it is by sincere faith in Christ that this instruction produces love. The manner to which we are to hold fast to instruction is in faith for the purpose of love. The twin graces of faith and love which flow out of the grace of Christ is exercised by the Christian, which motivates us to continue to hold fast to the instructions which has love at its end. Know the instruction and its goal experientially by faith. Number two, how do we hold on to these truths? Study and memorize the truth diligently. We are to know the truth experientially and study and memorize it diligently. Brethren, we are to adorn ourselves with God's instruction in His Word that you may live and teach these to others. In committing to the study and the memorization of God's Word, you will do what the psalmist says, hide God's Word in your heart that you may not sin against Him, that God's Word will be to you a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path, that you may know the direction in which to walk. Study and memorize the truth so that you can detect error quickly. We can think of um, many modern applications to this. You know, a, a bank teller handles real money all day long. They know the feel of it experientially. They know its, its shape. They know its size. They know the image that is on the bill. If they grab a hold of something fake, they immediately know it. Now, they're tuned to the truth so that they can detect a fake. We need not tune ourselves to the fakes so that we can detect the truth. Keep this in mind. The study and memorization of God's Word does exactly that for us, brethren. We are to know the truth experientially. We are to study and memorize the truth diligently. And finally, let us proclaim the truth faithfully. Proclaim the truth of this instruction faithfully. The age in which we are in is dark and seemingly hopeless. It's not that different from the time in which Timothy was in Ephesus. There was a flurry of ungodly activity throughout the culture and practice where Timothy was, and that created an even higher tension between the society in which Timothy was and the Christian in that society. There was darkness in Timothy's day. And we know that Timothy was timid. Some of us may be timid. But we are to have confidence in the fact that God's word is sufficient and shall surely stand for all eternity. We can with confidence and boldness know that the message of the gospel is the one that beats upon the gates of hell. But those gates will not stop it. We must stand firm, gripping the truth of scripture in a world that has so many so many distractions, so many noises clamoring for the hearts of men, women, and children. But the goal of that clamoring is not love. In fact, it is, its end is death. Let us proclaim the truth and inst- of this instruction faithfully, holding the lamp of the word faithfully so that we can walk through and lead others to that same safety. Paul encourages Timothy in the truth of his instruction, which has the goal of love, 
may we be encouraged in this also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your truth prevails and that it goes to the ends of the earth without changing the unstoppable, inerrant, and infallible truth that you have set forth in your word, proclaiming the truths of yourself, revealing to us Christ, the hope and Savior of all who put their faith and trust in him. Father, we pray that you would help us, help us in our knowledge of the truth, that we may live the lives that you have given us as Christians to your glory, that we may experience the pure heart, the good conscience at work from that sincere faith that we have received. Father, help your men and your people around the world who proclaim the truths of your gospel in foreign lands that there may be worship found where you were not worshipped before. Help us in our proclamation of the faith, of the truth faithfully in our families, in our workplaces, with our brethren. Help us to keep simple the faith and not complicate things, but tell others about Jesus that, that others may live. Father, help us to do this for no other reason but your glory. In Christ's name, amen.